care, Freda. Have a great one. Thank you for the book. I'll give it to her. You ready? Yep. Okay. I am laid low in the dust. Preserve my life according to your word. I recounted my ways and you answered me. Teach me your decrees. Let me understand the teaching of your precepts. Then I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me throughout your laws. I have chosen the way of truth and set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes, O Lord. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Good stuff there. Yes, it is, but I didn't say what it was. Dalet. Dalet. Dalet, which is also door, move, hang, entrance. There you go. Okay, today is February 28th, and uh, we'll go ahead and read this day in Christian history. It says here, only 25% of the Jews living in Holland survived the Holocaust. God chose to stop Hitler short of his final solution by using Gentile rescuers, human hands that hid, fed, and protected the Jews from the grisly Nazi onslaught. Two of those hands belonged to Corey ten Boom. She later said she was simply the skin on the hands of God. February 28, 1944, started like many other days in the ten Boom family. Uh, family watch shop in Nazi-occupied Harlem, Holland. Corey, the first woman watchmaker in Europe, was helping her father, Casper, repair watches. And her sister, Betsy, was doing housework in their home attached to the back of the watch shop. The machine gun-armed Gestapo that patrolled the streets was unaware of the six Jews hidden in a crawl space behind a bookcase in the Ten Boom house. Um, I think, it, hang on. Did that focus in? It didn't. Let me... Uh, it I is now. Okay, I forgot to uh, push the uh, Bible study button, and I heard the Somebody camera doing something. So, yeah, Sergio must have done that. Thank you, Sergio. Um, let me go back and finish where I was. Um, Corey wasn't surprised when a stranger, under the pretense of showing her broken watch, whispered that her family was also hiding Jews. His wife had just been arrested. She Could, could she help? Believing that God called her to resist the evil embodied in the Third Reich, Corey led a clandestine network of rescuers hiding Jews in Harlem. By 1944, Jews still alive in Nazi-occupied countries had two choices, hide or die. Corey agreed to help the stranger, and then he left the shop. During the night, sleep in the Ten Boom house was shattered by a Gestapo raid. That night, Corey, Betsy, Casper, and 33 other rescuers in their network were arrested, beaten, and charged with hiding Jews. But in spite of a two-day search, the Gestapo never found the six people in the Ten Boom's hiding place. Casper Ten Boom, Corey's father, died in prison 10 days after his arrest. Corey and Betsy were transferred to the Ravensbrück death camp, where Betsy later died Christmas Day. The Jews behind Corey's bookcase were freed, hidden again, and ultimately survived the Holocaust. In June 1945, four months after her release from Ravensbrück, Corey forced herself to write a letter that pained her greatly. It was to the Dutch stranger who had asked for help that day in the shop and whom Corey now realized had betrayed her family to the Nazis. I heard that most probably you are the one who betrayed me. I went through 10 months of concentration camp. My father died and my sister died in prison. The harm you planned was turned into good for me by God. I came nearer to him. I have prayed for you that the Lord may accept you if you will repent. I have forgiven you everything. God will also forgive you everything if you ask him. 
Rescuing dozens of Jews in Holland turned out to be the beginning of her life's work. God led her first to forgive her betrayer, then sent her out at age 54 with a message to the post-war world. She began in Harlem, where Corey established Christ-centered rehabilitation homes for people of all faiths scarred by the war. Then she went to America, where her story of the Holocaust put a new face on the horror that many had managed to keep at arm's length. In Cory, they saw their grandmothers, their mothers themselves. Many searched their hearts. Why would they, would they have hidden Jews? Could they have survived concentration camps? Cory's message was, my survival is not my personal miracle, but the reality of Jesus. Into Cory's 70s and 80s, God gave her opportunities to speak to thousands of people who turned to him through her message. Her aged hands, scarred from the concentration camp, wrote five best-selling books, Several strokes took away her ability to speak, but her books continued to minister. She died in 1983 at the age of 91. And they ask, if you had been living in Holland at the time of the Nazi takeover, would you have hidden Jews in your home? Why or why not? Who around you might, na might now, right now, might be in need of protection or help? And they quote Matthew 22:39, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, okay, that is right then. Sorry about that, Sergio. I wasn't paying attention. He and I were doing some things earlier, and it got me off my, my uh, track, I think. Yeah, he's always there for the rescue. That's a fact. We are in today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Oh, what a great chapter. I cite this chapter probably more than yeah. any other. Yeah, short one. yeah very short. I don't know. We might get through it today, but it is a magnificent <laughs> chapter. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to start in verse 1 whenever Jim starts reading. It actually it is actually reported that there are sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. Mm. Okay. At the end of the previous, oh, wait a minute. We didn't pray, and I've got no. uh, a prayer request. We'll get into 1 Corinthians 5.1 in just a second. Um, the only prayer request I wrote down, because I've had a busy week. I've read a million, but uh, somebody we've been praying for is a guy that attends online, Mark. His dad went into hospice today, and uh, he asked for prayers for both his father, who won't be long in the world, and his mother, who was married to him for 60 years. So we'll go to the Lord in prayer with that. What's that? Uh, oh, Graham? Yeah, I haven't heard. What's up with Graham? Uh, okay, well, yeah. Graham in Scotland has an infection, and we Blake's not here, so I imagine he's not doing well. And I have not heard the status of Miss Magnuson this week. I sent Mr. Magnuson an email, and I'm waiting to hear. But Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come to you in prayer for these people and any others that are out there that are suffering or struggling, <laughs> and that you would be with them and help them through their trials and let them know that you are there present with them, even in their times of distress, just like Corey Ten Boom was. And Lord, it is an honor to uh, be able to share you even when we're in times of affliction. And uh, hopefully we will be strong enough to do the right thing when those times come or should they come. And Lord, we uh, ask you bless this time together tonight. And uh, we would hope that uh, the word would be handled properly and that we would bring glory to you through it. But uh, that's for you to decide, and we just uh, pray that it is so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Read again? Yep, please. Okay. It is actually reported that there are sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even amongst pagans. Man has his father's wife. Father's wife. Okay, it says at the end of the previous chapter, Paul noted that those 
he noted those who were puffed up in their conduct. To close out the chapter, he said, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? This sets the tone for chapter five, which begins with the words that are hard to imagine in any society at any time, even though in this society, it seems like this kind of stuff is getting normal. Uh, it is actually reported. It, that indicates that Paul received word about the matter, but it also indicates that it is a known matter, something not hidden from the outside world. It was probably Chloe who reported this as she was the source of Paul's writing in the first place. Uh, that was previously seen in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, and it was verse 11 where it said this, um, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So probably included in this letter as we got this going on as well. That's just speculation. But um, Paul then says there, that there is sexual immorality among you. This is the reason for Paul's mentioning of a rod as noted above. This is something which is intolerable within the body and which needs to be addressed. Unfortunately, my friend sent me a uh, picture of a, uh, you know, when you IM each other and you can take a picture of the IM. I don't know what you call that, an uh, instant message screenshot. Thank you. And um, it was somebody that they had sent something to within the church that they are in. And they said, it, the Methodist church in particular, and what's going on with the homosexual issue. And the person down at the bottom, the person that responded, said something like, um, I, what would Jesus do? Which is always a trap. Yeah. But they put that. And then, of course, they went down into their thoughts. And towards the end, they said that we need to hold even above Scripture what we believe Jesus would do in this matter. And I thought... How absolutely insane is that? Because scripture is the only source we have for Jesus in the first place and what Jesus would do. So He was also pretty clear back at the end of Revelation. Oh, absolutely. Last page of the Bible, the sexually immoral. He talks about the entire thing. And so to bring up this issue and to say that it's okay in modern world completely discounts what Paul is saying right now and what's found all the way throughout scripture. So uh, it says, uh, bringing this up here in this epistle, which is recorded in the Bible, indicates that it is an offense for all ages, not something merely cultural within the area of Corinth, which is something that people will try to do. Well, that was the Corinthian thing, and it doesn't really apply, and people try to divide that. No, Paul's writings are prescriptive. They are here for the church age, and when Peter says something, and Peter's words are also prescriptive. They're directed more to the Jews of the end times, but how do we know that Peter's words are to be held as authoritative for us? is because of exactly what he says about Paul's letters. He references Paul's letters, and he says that they twist other scripture just as they twist what Paul says to their own detriment, etc., etc. Well, Peter wouldn't be saying that unless they were contemporary and they were talking about the exact same issues. So, um, But Peter's letters, as I said, are more directed after the church age to the Jews who are going to have to understand the times that they are in. However, we'll go on from there. Um, it's not just something cultural within Corinth. The implication then at this point and throughout the rest of the New Testament is that sexual immorality is not, is not to be practiced or excused. And that includes every vile thing that we are seeing in these churches today, which they are condoning. They're saying that it's okay. I, listen, there is one allowance for sex in the Bible. Can anybody say it? 
Marriage. Marriage. Man, woman, marriage. That is it. A man must be married to a woman. They must be in the bonds of marriage. That's it. I hate to tell people that uh, whatever they think about this issue, it's wrong. If it doesn't say man, woman, marriage, it is out. Now, I'm not going to get into the issue of polygamy. We'll get that into that later in the book of Timothy. But uh, for right now, just think man, woman, marriage. That is it for sex in the Bible or, or is allowed for sex in the Bible. Okay, um, so let's see here. Um, but there is more. This wasn't just a case of sexual immorality, which occurred through momentary passions. Instead, it was a deliberate act and one which was considered deplorable in the society of Corinth at that time or at any time in any society. This can be discerned from the words and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Paul is literally horrified by what he's writing here. This wasn't a matter of merely reinserting the law of Moses, which we'll take you there really quickly so you know where that is. That's Leviticus chapter 8. It says, Leviticus chapter 8, uh, 8. I put Leviticus chapter 8 and I'm not seeing it. Oh, 18. That's why I'm, you know, that's my dyslexia once again doing that. It does it all the time. I was looking for 818 and it's 188. It says, The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. Okay. That is something that was in the law of Moses, but this extends beyond the law of Moses. Rather, it was a matter which is written on the conscience of all people, as Paul would say in Romans chapter 1. Let me take you there. And he says in verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. So it's, it becomes something that a debased mind will do, and then they just keep getting worse and worse as they go along. Because of the offending nature of the act, and because even the Gentiles knew the utter impropriety of the matter, how shameful it was for someone in the church to conduct his affairs in such a way. And more, how shameful it was that the church knew about it and had done nothing to correct it, as will be seen in the verses ahead. And... The offense was that a man has his father's wife. That's Paul's words there. This was forbidden by the law of Moses, which arguably is set aside in Christ, but it was an act which was known to be wrong by all people instinctively. Further, it violated the edict issued by the council in Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15, which says, 15, and verse 27, we therefore sent Judas and Silas who will, oh, I'm in, uh, yeah, 15, that's right. Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. This was to the Gentiles before Paul's words had been uh, become uh, doctrine for the church age. 
that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. And eventually Paul's letters came in, they became prescriptive for the church age. But during that short time, there was a reason that we talked about in the Acts studies for each one of those prescriptions that they gave for that time. Anyway, um, life application. Doctrine for the church age has been given by Paul for our learning, guidance, adherence, and for our good. What is written there has been given for the sake of the church as well as individuals within the church. To flagrantly ignore mandates and exhortations which are prescriptive in nature can only cause harm to both. When one acts in such a manner, they are bringing disgrace upon the name of Jesus Christ. Be firm in your convictions that you will neither act in such a manner nor allow it to be tolerated in your church. And that's something that every person needs to be aware of. And it's, once again, we don't want to get into backbiting in church and you don't want to get into whispering and all of these type of things, gossip. But if something is inappropriate in a church, it should be highlighted. It should be brought out and it should be discussed. And that's just the way that the, it works. Because if not, and people start knowing that this is going on, the only thing it's going to do is it's going to harm the body. And it's also going to harm the name of Christ who the body is named under. So it, it, you just have to toe the line with this particular issue is, is sexual immorality. It permeates all of scripture from the beginning to the end. And it is something we have to be very careful to deal with. So 5-2. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have filled, be filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Okay, this one, uh, once again, like the last one, it's a little nicer in this particular version. It says, and are you not puffed up? And there's a reason for that, which we're going to see as we go along in this particular chapter. He's using a term puffed up. And what is that signifying? Arrogance, yes, being proud, being arrogant, but it's signifying yeast in bread, okay? And that's the metaphor that he's going to use. And so the idea is puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this thing might be taken away from you, okay? The puffed up was, I said proud. Proud, yes. Proud is puffed up. That's right. It's it's literally puffed up. But proud is fine. It's just, it's more of a paraphrase than what he is if you take it in the context of what he's going to say, especially in like um, uh, verse six, which is coming up here, you'll understand why he uses the terminology. But anyway, Paul in this verse is referring to the sexual immorality which exists within the church from the previous verse. He now begins with and, which is used to demonstrate the absurdity of the state of things within their ranks. In essence, he says, you act in this manner, but shouldn't it rather be the opposite? And the words are, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, instead of their puffed up attitude, which was mentioned in verse 419, they should be in a state of mourning and anguish over what is occurring right there among them. To be fair, they could be puffed up in one of two ways though. One, they were puffed up and filled with conceit and pride despite the wickedness which was among them, or they were puffed up and filled with conceit because of the wickedness which was among them. Doesn't really say. The first is probably the true case, though. They're filled with conceit and pride despite the wickedness. They were acting arrogantly and dividing over petty allegiances, even though there were greater issues which needed to be considered. However, the wickedness of the heart, which is recorded in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, is never to be dismissed, even among a group. 
And so it could be that despite being divided over which leader was best, they were united in an antimonian attitude towards sin, accepting that that which was forbidden. Now, let me take you really quickly to Jeremiah 17, just so you know. Are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked? Who can know it? Who can know it? Okay, I'll say it again in case you didn't hear him. The heart is de de deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You have it memorized. I know what it says, but I didn't want to blow it and, and misquote it. So there you go. Um, so the, um, uh, they have this attitude towards sin, which is unacceptable, which is the case cannot be determined, but both show a negligence towards proper conduct within the church. Instead of accepting how things were with this person, this is what was going on. Paul notes that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. Instead of fellowshipping with such a person, they should have already excommunicated him. But rather than facing the problem from this perspective, they have either avoided it or they have openly condoned it. Paul shows them that this attitude is wrong. Mourning, not acceptance, is what is expected and what is needed. Mourning. Life application. It sure is easy to overlook things which might otherwise cause us to have to act in a manner which seems judgmental or intolerant. However, in such cases, it is not we who actually decide the course of action to take. It is God who has given his word for our Christian walk. If we can remember this, then we will remember that we are honoring him by adhering to his word. And when we don't adhere to his word, we are not honoring him. And that goes with what's going on in the church as well as what's going on in our own personal lives. So we have to keep these things in mind constantly. Verse 5-3. Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were there. Okay. In this verse, Paul writes in broken thoughts, as if he were mourning over his words and contemplating each one carefully, even through the tears of sadness. Each is a separate, heartfelt consideration of what must occur in order for the situation to be resolved. Beginning with, for I indeed... He is stressing the importance of the issue which is being considered in connection with the previous words that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And then he says, as absent in body but present in spirit is a way of saying that his physical absence from the congregation does not negate his spiritual tie to them. He is in his heart and in his affections right there worshiping with them. He is attuned to their situation, feeling their emotions, and sharing in their highs and lows. In this case, it is as a father with his beloved children discussing a matter which will ultimately adversely affect them unless they get it resolved. In this, he shares that I have already judged as though I were present. In his deliberations over the matter, which began the moment they were relayed to him, and probably through much prayer and reflection, he came to a judgment as to what needed to be done. However, he isn't present, and so he can only relay his judgment from afar. The broken sentences then are, in, are, this, are explained in this. He is conveying emotion with a profound determination through them. We do this with exclamation points and other punctuation which was lacking in the Greek. In the Greek, or I'm sorry, in the English, when we're excited, we put an exclamation point. When we're questioning somebody's 
you know, thought process, we might put four question marks in a row and that shows our highlight, you know, or we might put something in quotes. They didn't have all of that punctuation in the Greek. And so the way they would show their feelings was to have broken sentences. It would be kind of hard reading, like you'd have to stop and read one clause. And then and we saw that in the sermon, I think this past week or two weeks ago, where there were broken, it was when Moses was appealing to the Lord on the mercy of God. And he was speaking to God in these broken sentences. Same idea there. More the what? More theatrical. More theatrical absolutely. So uh, let's see here. Um, therefore, the sentence structure was important in this matter. And Paul's judgment is against him who has so done this deed. The matter of sexual immorality needed to be handled, and it didn't matter who it was. He has been singled out in Paul's letter indirectly, and now it is incumbent on those around that person to take the necessary action that Paul will recommend in the coming verses. Okay, somebody, this came to mind right now, and it's something they'll probably repeat again and again in the future. Somebody emailed me this morning, and I asked if I could use their comments, and they said yes. So um, it was concerning uh, talking against sin, particularly what we were talking about in the last verse, but it, it'll carry all the way through this entire section, is uh, this individual's question was, at what point do I just stop? and let God's will be done because we know that the world's going to go into this state and at what point do because this person is very vocal about talking in particular against abortion but other issues as well very moral person and they're always defending their morality and they said at what point should I stop doing this and just allow God's will in the sin that's going on in the world to take place and my answer was that it is never God's will that sin takes place never okay it is God's understanding that sin will take place. It is God's understanding that the church will devolve into a den of iniquity. He knew these things would happen, but it wasn't his will that it was, that, that came about. And there are many examples in scripture of people that spoke about the wickedness in the world to the last day. Can anybody think of the very first one that's mentioned? Uh, I'll give you a hint, it's in Genesis chapter six. Noah. He was later in uh, the book of uh, 2 Peter, 2 Peter, called a preacher of righteousness. That's right. And then later on, after the uh, flood was over and after the nations dispersed, and then we have uh, Abraham in the land of Canaan, and he got uh, so many uh, animals and so much livestock and everything that he and Lot could no longer live together. And so Lot moved down to the well-watered plain of the Jordan where Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah was, right. And what does it say in 2 Peter about him? That his righteous heart was vexed. He was there. He tried to keep the people on a righteous path. It's even seen in the account when the angels show up at his place. He tried to stay them from their activities. And once again, he did the right thing. And then you get, of course, to the people of Israel. And we go all the way through the history of Israel and to the very last day before they were destroyed, there's a prophet there and he's proclaiming what is coming. And he's telling them what to do about, it. who is that? Begins with a J and ends with an Aramiah. Yeah, there you go. He, he's, uh, right until the last day, he records the destruction of the, uh, of the uh, temple, right? And the, the exile of the people. And he constantly was talking against the wickedness and unrighteousness, okay? And then we have, of course, the People come back from exile, they're living in the land, and who shows up to tell them that the things that they are doing are inappropriate? Jesus. 
Jesus shows up. Yeah, all of the prophets did up until the time of Jesus, but ultimately Jesus is the final one. And he told them, you know, the sign of Jonah, it's going to be executed. And what is the sign of Jonah? It's not three days and three nights in the heart of the fish. People have misunderstood that for years and years and years. The sign of Jonah was yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And he uses the pattern, which is found all the way through the Bible, a day for a year, 40 days for the spies, 40 years of judgment. You've got Ezekiel, 40 days here, 390 days here, 430 years of judgment for Judah and Israel. You see that pattern going on. Jesus was telling them, and it says explicitly, it's a little harder to see that in the book of Matthew, but in the book of Luke, it is explicitly the preaching of Jonah, which is the sign to the people. Repent, turn back, right? Follow the right way. And yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Well, in 40 years from the beginning of his ministry, Israel was exiled again. And now we are in the church age and we're facing exactly the same dilemma. And it will be for reward, not for your mourning that you're being persecuted by your friends, being defriended on Facebook. You're not being uh, called a bigot and uh, all of these other things that people will call you. And, you know, you got a, a sticker on your card that says Jesus and you might get your, uh, your car keyed. Okay, whatever. People don't like this message and they don't like the fact that you hold to the, the doctrine of Scripture. But it is our job to never compromise on this. Never. We are to hold fast to the, uh, the preaching of righteousness until the very last day. That's what Noah did. That's what Lot did when he was in Sodom. That's what Jeremiah and all of the prophets did. They all tried to call the people back, but Jeremiah was just the last one before they were exiled. And then, of course, course we have the example of christ and then we have the apostles never deviate from that same message despite what people say what would jesus do and all of these crazy things we know what he would do because it's written in the last book of the bible and it is going to be terrible on this planet when it comes but that's my uh, thing for you to understand what is going on in our current time is something that we must be willing to say despite what people think you have to be a preacher of righteousness in whatever way you can be. Life application on this. The reason why so many churches have no moral base is because of compromise over moral issues. Friendships arise that may preclude harsh judgment. Wealthy donors may have their transgressions overlooked because of the supposed need for their money. The same may be true with the politically connected. Eventually, such examples will become the standard. When this occurs, the church is doomed. Jesus has been left outside of the door for the sake of tolerance and compromise. The lampstand will be removed and judgment day will be a day of regret, not rejoicing. Bye for. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, this verse introduces the sentence which Paul recommends to be executed on the offender. He has been speaking about this person since verse 1, and now he's giving the directions. The next verse will be the pronouncement of the sentence. His words give us insights into the apostolic authority and also its limitations. Although there are no true apostles today, we can discern proper church discipline from his words. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, it indicates the authority of the ultimate authority of church matters. It is the Lord's church. He is the head of it. So, so much for that. We need to do what we think Jesus would do and not what scripture says. Scripture is his word. It is the final authority that we have for 
conducting our affairs. And so when we have a book of discipline or some other book that says this is what we teach in this church, we have departed already from what Scripture says. And, What's that? And who doesn't change God doesn't change his mind ever. Scripture will never change, whereas the book of discipline, as we've seen in countless denominations, changes. And as it changes, the church degrades. That's just the way it is. So in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ gives us that ultimate authority. When actions of this nature are taken, they are done so in his name. No other authority would make sense. Stating that a judgment is made in the name of the Pope would be to supplant the authority of Christ himself. That or any other such title of power would be less than the ultimate authority and thus no true authority at all. And then he says, when you are gathered together, that indicates that the church is to be kept informed of such decisions and actions. And although not necessarily involved in the directly in the decision making process, they are to be witnesses of it. Elsewhere, the authority of elders is noted and it is explained. That's explicitly in 1 Timothy and then in the book of Titus, also in 2 Timothy, but mostly elders and deacons, it gives their authority and what they're supposed to do in uh, 1 Timothy and Titus. But when you are gathered together, um, oh yeah, it's uh, they have proper position within the church, meaning the elders and deacons, and they have been selected to make the final judgments. Unless you're in a congregationally led church and then you're going to have a little bit of uh, you know, deviation from that in certain matters. But even congregationally led churches usually have a pastor with deacons. So, and this goes all the way back to the first such established church recording, which is in the Council of Jerusalem, which is in Acts chapter 15. We already looked at that once today. There at that meeting, the apostles were gathered and they spoke. However, the final decision was rendered not by them, but by James, the Lord's brother who wasn't even a named apostle. He probably was an apostle, but he was never named that in scripture. As its leader, it was his judgment which was accepted and acted upon. Let me make a note here. Paul then notes along with my spirit. This is like saying, this is my decision on the matter. Act on it as if I were there speaking in this council. Those in the church had the right to reject his words but they would be rejecting God's appointed counselor if they did. Now, his words and those of the other apostles chosen to write portions of the Bible are recorded for us. We don't need to go anywhere else because we have their words. The ones that God wanted to write the Bible, he had write the Bible. The ones that he wanted to write the epistles, they wrote the epistles. We know what church doctrine should be simply by looking at scripture. We don't need to go anywhere else than that, okay? We should always go to the Bible for our instruction and then render our decisions based on it and nothing else. Now we can add in our thinking and our you know talks and everything because there are unique situations, but the framework of what we should be doing comes directly from scripture, not from a book of discipline, not from any other source except the Bible, all right? To reject it would be comparable to those in Corinth rejecting Paul's words here. It would be a decision not rendered according to the will of Jesus Christ and thus it would be devoid of the power, as Paul says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. This final section of the verse shows that this power was in fact granted to Paul for such matters. Rejecting his determination, which they could do, would be to reject the determination of Christ himself. We stand in the same position now because of God's word. It is complete and ready for our use in such matters. The Bible is where we get that doctrine. And we're going to see that in the sermon on Sunday, is that Moses' authority is questioned. 
at the time, under the dispensation of the law, it was Moses who was the ultimate authority. And even Jesus didn't dispute that in the Gospels, did he? He said, they sit in Moses' seat, therefore you must listen to them, but don't do what they do, right? Or don't act as it, however he said it. But if they make a ruling in Moses' authority, it had to be done because they sat in Moses' seat. He was the ultimate authority under the law because he was the one that received the law directly from God, okay? And I've said this in the sermon, I think, last week, and I've said it in several Bible studies, but the law of Moses, when people say, well, the law of Moses says, um, I'll read it to you. We'll go to Malachi really quickly because it's fresh on my mind from last week's sermon. And I want to give a point about that because people, we had somebody come in and ask me a question about a law matter today and the matter got resolved. But here's what it says first. It says in the law itself, one of the prophets of the law, it says in the very end of the Old Testament, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Right? So he's saying, remember the law of Moses. And what does it say in the law of Moses? Does anybody remember the point I made in the sermon? Okay, everybody's got to rewatch the sermon this week. Okay, I said that in the law of Moses, it says that I will send a prophet like you, like Moses. Him you shall hear. When it says, remember the law of Moses, it is saying, pay heed that one is coming who will speak with the authority of the law itself because he is the lawgiver. And that is, when it says, remember the law of Moses, it's not saying that we are to be under the law of Moses, that we are to do the commands of the law of Moses in any way, shape, or form. It is saying that God is going to give another lawgiver, a prophet like me, is what Moses said in Deuteronomy. I think it's Deuteronomy 18, if I remember this. 1815? Have you got it in front of you? No. Oh, okay. Well, then we'll get there. If you get there, just read it. But, 18, but read it loud if you read it. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you, a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you, de you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Then the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. It's speaking of the incarnation of Jesus Christ because it was the Lord who spoke from Sinai. And the people said, we can't hear the voice of God. So what did he do? He became a man. He entered the stream of humanity. And he says here, which, and it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. In other words, done. He is the authority. When Jesus said, I am establishing a new covenant in my blood, it means that the old covenant is done. Okay? He is the authority. If they reject it, then they God will reject them. And that is the weight and the penalty of trying to stay under the law of Moses teaching people to adhere to precepts of the law of Moses, saying that you have to not eat pork. You have to wear, you know what? The same people that have these little pet peeves out of the law of Moses, not one of them has talits on the four corners of their garments. Not one of them does 99% of the law of Moses, but they say, you got to do this or you're not a good Christian. You got to observe the law, the uh, Passover. You've got to, Christ is our Passover. That's explicit coming up. Maybe we've already said it in 1 Corinthians. If we haven't, it's coming up. He is our Passover. He is our first fruits. He is dwelling in human flesh. 
all of the feasts are fulfilled in him, every single one of them. If the fall feasts of Israel were not fulfilled in Christ, then he's not the Messiah and the law is not fulfilled and we are still in our sins and we are still bound to the law of Moses. He has fulfilled every one of those feasts perfectly. If you don't believe that, go back and watch the Leviticus uh, 23 sermons. And if you listen to them and you still disagree, you're wrong. Okay. There you go. Yeah, there you go. That's right. So um, where were we? We were um, uh, speaking of uh, today the, oh yeah, we have the Bible. We are to hold to that. And then life application. What authority is your church relying upon for their doctrine, practice, and judgments? If it is claimed to be Holy Ghost power, then it had better line up with what the Bible states because the Bible was given under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, or it ain't Holy Ghost power. There are all kinds of churches that claim we get our revelation from God directly from the Bible and it doesn't match scripture at all. God is not confused if the Bible says something and they say something contrary to the Bible, it ain't of God. And we're going to get to that explicitly as we get through the book of 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 14, but elsewhere as well. If it is claimed to be a formal council decisions of the past or some type of catechism, then they need to line up with the Bible as well. If they don't, then there is no true power from the Lord in them. No matter what authority is claimed, it must be in accord with the words of Scripture or it is a false authority for such matters. Five five. Deliver such a one to Satan, the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. You know, this is it. This is the verse that I probably cited more often than any other verse that I can think of because it is such an important verse to read and to understand. And I don't know how somebody can read this and come to any other conclusion. Um, in the uh, 1 Timothy, where it mentions Hymenus and Philetus who have walked away from the Lord, can you find that while we're doing this uh, uh, verse? And then I want to make a point about them as well. I just don't want to uh, take a lot of time shuffling through paper looking for it. So if you find it, great. If not, I'll get it on the iPad really quickly. Anyway, 5-5. Five, five. In Christianity, doctrine is often thought of as an obstacle to a right relationship with the Lord. Instead, emotions rule theology, and it rules the hearts of worshipers to the exclusion of doctrine. This only leads to ineffective Christianity, unsteadiness, and a right walk with the Lord, and eventually churches becoming merely social gatherings with no true grounding in what it means to be a Christian. However, Doctrine is actually of paramount importance, as we can learn from the verse under consideration. Paul has established doctrine on several, several levels here. First, he has said what is right and proper to do in the case of such a heinous sin as was being committed within the church. The reasons for taking this action are long and detailed, but above all, it was to keep purity within the faith, a right perception of Jesus Christ to those within and without the faith, and to keep the church from devolving into a pattern of abuse, which would eventually mean it's, it is, it's right to even be called a church, which would be removed by the Lord. That is where it says in Revelation 2, verse 5, I'm going to remove your lampstand. When the lampstand is removed, it ain't a church anymore. Now, we don't see that. That's the Lord's workings, and he knows what churches are his. He knows which churches aren't, but that is his example for us to understand. He has a standard, and if that standard is finally violated to a certain point, the lampstand is removed, and it is no longer a church, okay? So we want to understand that completely and absolutely, and we think of, I was talking about devolving of churches here. 
and you look at what's happened to the Methodist Church, and yesterday when the decision was rendered that we are still not going to ordain homosexual pastors, there were people, women that were supposed pastors in the denomination. It was like a rainbow of people sitting around each other crying that they couldn't ordain homosexuals. And you think of the level of mental perversion which is going on in that church. I would have left, I did leave years ago. I was there for about three or four months, years and years and years ago. I went to the, because my neighbor went to that church and was after meeting the Lord. And I thought, well, I'm just go where my neighbor goes. They're nice Christian people. And after just a very short time, I went on to the, the Methodist main page and I read up on what they believe and what they do. And one of the things that it said is the general synod or whatever they call it met and 44.3% of the people wanted homosexual pastors. And this was back in like 2003 or something. I said, I can't be a part of this organization. There shouldn't be one person that would vote for that. Not one in that entire denomination, much less 44% of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I was so appalled. I said, I am done. And then of course the abortion issue comes up and we have people at the Grace Baptist where I was at suddenly show up and I can't get rid of them to this day, some of them, but they they left en masse from the Methodist church at that time, a whole bunch of them. The, the class went from like four people to 30 in one week. So anyway. Just um, let you know, they only won that because of the Methodist church in Africa. Oh yeah, absolutely. The Methodist church in Africa is the only reason why the, the uh, church did not go to homosexuality in America or in the world is because the Africans still will not tolerate that. And they are under the umbrella, they get the property, they get all of the goods that go along with it. And so they have their own doctrine over there, they have their own standards, but unfortunately, if it wasn't for them, this church would be completely gone right now. It would have been gone yesterday or two years ago or two years before that because they've been pushing this for years. But you're absolutely right. It's the Africans that are the only thing that are keeping the UMC together in any way, shape or form. But we'll go on. Um, besides, just mentioned Revelation 2, 5, taking away the lampstand. Besides these and other considerations, there's another point of doctrine which can be discerned from this verse, especially when taken in context with other such verses within Paul's writings. And I may have them in here, but it came to mind. I want to make sure I do. It is the doctrine of eternal salvation. Christians debate whether one can lose their salvation or not. We hear it all the time. The debate is wholly unnecessary if one understands the nature of God and properly handles the word of God. The answer is no, you cannot lose your salvation. If one believes in Christ, they are sealed with the Holy Spirit at that moment. This is a deposit also called a guarantee of their new state. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, which we say, cite you know, class after class after class, among other verses, shows this is so. As a matter of fact, I'm going to read it just, just so that we don't skip over it. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Ephesians 1, 13. There it is. Okay, so in him, meaning Jesus, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. So you heard the word of truth and you trusted Jesus, which is the gospel of your salvation. I'm paraphrasing this as I go along, okay? In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, meaning Jesus, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased 
possession. God has already purchased you. It's done. The deal is done, okay, to the praise of his glory. It has nothing to do with you at all once you have called on Jesus. It is to the praise of his glory. So the question is, can God make a mistake? Absolutely not. God is infallible in any way, shape, or form. He cannot err. If God has sealed you with his Holy Spirit, as it says he has when you trusted in Christ, then you are sealed, and that means you will be redeemed, and you cannot lose your salvation. Because if you call into question the act of God in sealing you and saying you can't lose your salvation, then you are saying that God is incompetent, that God has made a mistake, and that is not the God of the Bible. I got news for you. People that teach that doctrine are going to have to stand before the Lord, and they're going to have to justify why they believe it. And I'm going to tell you another thing that goes hand in hand with that. There's people that believe that God has rejected Israel, because Israel is simply a, a picture of individual salvation. They're a collective group of people, but God has made a covenant with them, and he says he will never reject them, ever, ever. And to say that a group of Gentiles has come in and has now replaced them is absolutely saying that this is not a God to be trusted in any way, shape, or form. It has nothing to do with Israel. It has everything to do with God, with the name of the Lord on them. If you say that you can lose your salvation, you are so wholly mistaken and so wholly uninformed on the nature of God that you need to reevaluate your position in Christ. You really need to. You need to understand that this is impossible. It's not going to happen. You will lose your rewards. You may lose your joy and you could lose your life, but you will not lose your salvation and God will never reject Israel. That will never happen. It has not happened and it will not happen. And no, you can't use the category mistake saying that the church is now Israel. So he hasn't rejected Israel because the church is not Israel. We went through that in Romans. It is very clear. You can see I'm getting passionate about this because it's such an important tenet that people need to understand. Any of that stuff, you have to say that God does not know everything. He changed That's his right. mind and he does make mistakes. Yeah. And, you and he also lies. Yeah, that too. Right? Absolutely. So you've got at least those four and maybe others. I mean, it's just absolutely insane to think that you could lose your salvation once you have trusted in Christ. I don't care. People, every time I get into this, I get an email the next day. Well, you can't lose your salvation, but you can give it away. You can throw it away. It's still the same God. He still sealed the same person. It is still his choice, and it is his mistake if he doesn't follow through with it. Once again, Israel threw away their salvation a hundred thousand times, but God has not thrown it away from his side of the bargain. You need to think this through clearly because, and I don't want your emails anymore on these things. Don't send me emails on loss of salvation. It is untrue. It is absolutely untrue. God is never going to reject somebody that he has saved, ever. Okay? Anyway, we'll go on with this. 2 Corinthians 5.5. 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 or 2 Corinthians 5.5? 5 5? Okay, because I wrote one. That was no, the no, next, no, 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 that's no, the, no, you're right there. Okay. It says who... God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge or as a guarantee. Oh, yes. That's, by five. That's the same word, yeah, though, yeah. as in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Exactly. It's the same word, Erevon, which is the word from Genesis 38, three times, three times in the New Testament. That's right. 2 Corinthians 5, 5. The same word is used, and it is a pledge. It is a guarantee. It is not something that we can take away or reject. It is done. God has made the decision. He has purchased the possession. You might go to the very back of the line when you're standing in line for judgments. I mean, rewards and uh, loss of rewards, but you will be there. Okay. 
This is confirmed by verses such as 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, which we're reading right here. Um, let me read it to you. Dis deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul is speaking to the body of believers about a believer. In his direct way of handling the case before him, he makes his judgment, which he anticipates they will obediently follow by stating for them to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Satan is the ruler of this world, but he is defeated before Christ. He has no power over a believer, but can only afflict them as they continue in their earthly walk. The choice is each believer's as to whether they will follow the flesh or follow the leading of the Spirit, and it is a constant battle. I know that. Some of you email me about that, whether you're in Africa or wherever, and we talk about that. It is a constant battle. It's a constant battle for Charlie Garrett. It's a constant battle for Franklin Graham. It was a constant battle for his father. It was a constant battle for Paul. If you don't believe me, let's go to Romans chapter 7 for a minute. Did Paul suffer? Romans 7. Let's go to verse... 13, has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. He's writing about himself and he's writing about every other person that is in Christ. I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, there is nothing good. Nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. Now he just said that it's sin that dwells in him. Everybody got that? He said sin that dwells in me. He will go on. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So if he's serving the law of sin, like this guy is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, what is the answer? Sin living in him? It's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, which I bring up again and again and again. God is not imputing our sins against us. God is not counting our sins against us is a good paraphrase of that. Sin is dwelling in us. We can't do anything about it. And so Christ came to redeem us from the law and the power of sin because the law is where the power of sin comes from. We are not being imputed sin. That's another argument for eternal salvation as well. If we're not being imputed sin and the wages of sin is death, then we are eternally saved because it's not speaking of physical death, it's speaking of spiritual death. If we're not being imputed sin, 
because God has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, that we can die no more. Eternal salvation once again. Okay, Romans 7, 13 through 25 shows us the terrible dilemma that we're all in. This believer had to, had decided to follow the flesh. Paul instructs them to deliver him over completely to the flesh then by delivering him to Satan. Satan is the ruler of this world. If he wants to participate in this world, get him out of the church and let him go have his way with the world. If you were an alcoholic once and you have risen above that, and then you say, I just want to go back and start drinking again, there's nothing to stop you from doing that. There's nothing that's going to stop you from doing that. You're not going to lose your salvation, but you're going to be in the position this guy is in here. You're being handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, because what does that do to you? It ruins your liver. It ruins your kidney, whatever part of your body. Eventually, it consumes your life. It consumes all of your finances. It consumes your family, and you die in a, a alley somewhere because you let the power of the devil take over you once again, but you haven't lost your salvation. Same thing with drugs, same thing with any other thing that you allow to consume you. In the case here, it happens to be sexual immorality. And we think of alcohol being such a terrible sin or drugs being such a terrible, and I'm talking about not moderate use of alcohol, I'm talking about you know alcoholism or drugs being such a terrible sin. I can't think of anything more affecting of the mind than sexual sin. It permeates, everywhere you go in this society, it is everywhere. It's on the TV. You open a, uh, somebody sends you a link to a news article and what do you got? You got a naked girl sitting there. I mean, it just, it's everywhere and it gets in your mind and you can't get away from it. There's nothing you can do to get away from it once it's in there. You have to shake your head and say, I, I just can't think about this. This is the dilemma that this guy is in. And now he is engaging in something. He says, I'm going to try something else. And he goes to his father's wife or, his, you know, a man has his father's wife. It, it, it becomes an infection then it's never enough. It's never enough. It's like having your next drink. It's like having your next pill. It is never enough. And it just becomes consuming of you. This is what Paul is speaking of right here. Hand him over to Satan. Is this destruction linked to AIDS or anything? It could be AIDS. Absolutely. It could be getting shot by the guy whose wife you're sleeping with. It could be any of those things. Anything to do that's connected with that sin, it is definitely dealing with that. And here's the example. I, I got ahead of myself, and now I see my next comment. If one is an alcoholic and comes to Christ, they are saved. The deal is done, and they have moved from Adam to Christ. However, if they fall back on their old ways, they will eventually have their flesh destroyed through alcohol. The same is true with drugs, sexual immorality, or any other such carnal sin which affects the flesh of the believer. Whatever perversion lays hold of a believer, the result will be exactly the same as the non-believer. They will eventually have their flesh destroyed by that sin. However, there is a difference between the two. In the case of the non-believer, they were never united to God spiritually by calling on Christ and their spirit will be lost for all eternity. On the other hand, a believer remains saved regardless of whether they return to their earthly lusts or not. The spiritual connection has been guaranteed by God. Again, go back and read Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Memorize it. Think on it. And you can come to no other conclusion unless you have a warped sense of the Creator. There's no other way to look at it. And it remains for eternity. For such a person, his flesh will be destroyed, exactly as it says right here in 1 Corinthians 5. He will suffer all the hardship of any other person following that path. But Paul says there is a difference in his final end when he completes his thought. Instead, he is handed over to Satan so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
though his rewards will be lost, which we're going to, uh, we did see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 12 through 15, and though his body may be tormented and afflicted, which is 1 Corinthians 5 verse 5, which we're looking at, and though he will suffer much in this life, 1 Timothy, let me take you there, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 20, hang on a second here, might as well get read it, no point in rushing through here, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. What did I say? This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, here it is right here, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. I have people all the time say, see, you can lose your salvation because look at these people su suffered shipwreck. And one, they've come shipwreck. So what? Does that mean that they've lost their salvation? No, he uses the exact same term of them that he speaks of this person right here. I've handed them over to Satan. Why? For the destruction of their flesh, for getting them to think about their actions. And if they die in those actions, so be it. They're not going to lose their salvation, but they're not going to be a part of this congregation if they've suffered shipwreck and wasted their faith, but they have not lost their salvation. All of these scriptures, and every time you see something like that, where it says it here and it says it here, you have to refer to both of them because Paul is making a point. You can't lose your salvation. Okay, we'll go on. Um, Timothy 1, 18 through 20, he still retains the promise of God, the surety of the sealing of the Spirit unto eternal life. In this and for a jillion other reasons, doctrine does matter. To believe otherwise concerning this issue is to believe that God will not keep his promises. Instead, our salvation would be up to us. That's right. It'd be up to us, not to God. If you can, if you are saved at this moment in time, this will say that this is uh, 1 January of 2019. And anytime from there until your death, when you die at uh, 31 December of 2019, okay, you had a pretty short walk with Christ, but you have 365 days. If you can lose your salvation at any point along that path because of something you have done, then it was never up to God in the first place. It was always up to you. Salvation is something that is given by God, and if it is given by God, then it is of grace through faith and not of works, lest any man should boast. If you can say, I can now lose my salvation because of something I have done, that's saying that my sin is greater than what he did here, and therefore it was never of grace to begin with. If you can lose your salvation, then it was always of your works and not of his grace. Always. It doesn't matter how long. I said 365 days. It could be 365 years like Enoch's walk on this planet. It will always be up to you if you can lose that salvation. It will never be up to God if you can. But it is of God and it is solely of God. Okay, we'll go on. Now let's see here. Right? All these matters. Okay, yes, it would not be up to him. Further, the one to decide such eternal matters would then be the pastor or preacher who teaches this aberrant doctrine in the first place. You talk about bondage. If your position is based on your faults, and those faults are decided by another human, then these two things have happened. One, the human teacher has elevated himself to an untouchable level and has obtained complete control over the actions 
which are still earthly and failing, of those under him. He becomes the ruler of the prize and the one to decide any and every facet of the spiritual life of those under him. And two, the person who so believes this concept has subordinated himself not to Christ, but to the decisions of another fallen soul. They now place their trust in the decisions of a lesser, not the greater. And this is exactly what Paul has been speaking about for the first four full chapters, unhealthy divisions. He's still talking about the same thing right here, unhealthy divisions, because these people are saying, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul. And they've got these, their priorities all out of whack. They have relegated themselves below the greater, which is Christ. It is the word of God which establishes our doctrine, nothing more, nothing less. Be approved, stand approved, and hold fast to the truth of the message that God has given. Life application, once saved means always, always. saved. That's correct. Jesus Christ does not make mistakes, nor does the Holy Spirit, nor does God the Father. They are one. They are united in their actions. Five, six. Your glory is not good. Glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? There you go. There's the symbolism again. You've got puffed up, and now he's speaking about leaven, leavening the whole lump. And somebody said, oh, I saw a couple posts today, very happy for the United Methodist Church that they made the right choice. And I said, the leaven is already there. It's just time. That's all. The, the loaf is rising. It's going to continue to rise. Unless they get the leaven out, it will continue to rise, and they are not going to. They're going to allow those same people that wear those same perverted colors on their ordination garments to continue to lead past, uh, lead congregations, to pastor churches. The leaven is there, and it will not go away unless they make it go away, and that ain't going to happen. The UMC is done. It's just a matter of time. The, it just hasn't risen all the way yet, but it's real close. All right. The words, your glorying, indicates boasting. It refers back to the words he used in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 19, which said, But I will I come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word or power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? As noted then, this was a metaphor of bread being puffed up from the use of yeast. Throughout the Bible, this is seen as a picture of sin, and specifically, in this case, pride. The symbolism permeates the pages of Scripture, and it all points to sin in our lives. In, if you don't believe that, if you haven't watched the Leviticus sermons on leaven stuff and about, you know, touching boils and all that, all of it points to exactly what we're talking about right here. Anything unclean, it's all pointing to the same matter. All right. The symbolism permeates the pages of scripture and it all points to sin in our lives. In contrast, it is Jesus who knew no sin and thus he is pictured by unleavened bread, such as that used at the Passover. Or the Lord's Supper at the Superior Word on Sunday, if you don't show up here. <clears throat> oh, sorry, I wasn't looking in your direction. The boasting of the Corinthians was, in picture and in reality, un-Christ-like. Paul says that it is not good. Everybody understand? He says you're boasting, you're being puffed up, it's not good. Well, if he's unleavened and you're puffed up, then you're not being Christ-like. See that? Okay. 
In order for them to understand, he reverts back to the Old Testament symbolism and shows them exactly what he means by saying, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? That is all it takes. Just a little pinch of yeast will permeate the entire lump of dough. It, like sin in a person, will affect everything around it. In other words, the sin in the man whom Paul recommended to be expelled, if not expelled, will affect the whole congregation. Jesus explained this to his own apostles during his ministry, trying to get them to realize that adding to the word of God with man-instituted traditions could only infect the purity of the word of God in our lives. In Matthew 16, 6, he said this to them. He said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in his consistent way of writing, Paul uses the same terminology when speaking to the Galatians about their attempts to reintroduce the law into proper church age theology, such as the rite of circumcision. Such actions merely set aside the grace of Christ that they had received, and it makes them debtors to the whole law. Here are his words from Galatians 5 verse 9. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's exactly right. To see how potent the true effects of yeast are, we can look at the process of San Francisco sourdough bread. Now, I've given this in a sermon, and I've also uh, said it in a Bible study, I'm sure, but it's still very interesting, okay? It is the most famous sourdough bread made in the USA today, probably in the entire world. San Francisco sourdough bread. Has everybody heard of that? Yeah. Okay, everybody here nods their heads. Unlike sourdough, which is made in other areas of the country, what San Francisco produces has remained in continuous production for nearly 150 years. Some bakeries, for example, the Boudin Bakery, are able to trace their starters, their starters back to California's territorial period, long before it was a state. A starter is a piece of the bread dough, which is cut off and it's left out of the baking process. So you have a big batch of dough, you cut it up into pieces of bread, you put it in the oven, you bake it, but you take one piece and you set it off to the side, okay? The next day, when they make the new batch of dough, they throw in the piece from the previous day, the starter. This piece of dough contains the yeast for the entire batch of new dough. No new yeast is introduced. In the case of the Boudin Bakery, they have used the same initial yeast, probably this much, in a batch of dough that big over 150 years ago. They have, year by year, without adding any more leaven, used the same yeast for over 150 years, day by day by day. Cut off a piece, save it for tomorrow. Cut off a piece, save it for tomorrow. Cut off a piece, that one's for tomorrow. One pinch of yeast from over 150 years ago still affects the dough in exactly the same way. Now think of this in the context of the church. Bad doctrine introduced by the heretic Joseph Smith, who, anybody? Mormonism has affected the entire group known as the Mormons to such an extent that they cannot be called Christians in any true sense. That was 150 some years ago, maybe more. A little bit of yeast has leavened that entire lump. Likewise, the yeast of tradition has crept into almost every major denomination in Christianity. The very thing that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for permeates almost the entire spectrum of the faith in varying degrees. Such is the nature of just a little bit of yeast. Just a little bit. Life application. Our doctrine is to be based on the word of God. 
anything which is practiced in a church which does not adhere to the word of God is to be rejected. Paul's warning to the Corinthians is a principle which must be held to even now and forever until the Lord comes. We've got to hold to one standard and one standard alone. And that's not to say that you can't do things in a church that you like doing, like having a monthly potluck supper or, you know, doing this or doing that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about things which affect doctrine within the church. That is what we're worried about there. If something in a church that is a tradition becomes doctrine, then that's a problem. One time for about a month, I stopped wearing the, the talit that I wear when I give the Lord's Supper, just because I thought it's becoming a little bit routine and people started emailing me, why'd you stop doing that? And I said, because I don't want it to become a practice where it's considered necessary. And But I started doing it again and I do it every week just because it's what I do. But it's not necessary in any way, shape or form. If I came in here with blue jeans and a t-shirt like I'm wearing today, it wouldn't make any difference. Churches say, well, you need to wear a tie. I'll give you an example. This comes to mind, right? This this is what happened. I was in a church, okay? And I, I it was the church that I asked, how do I get ordained in? I don't want to say anything about the church because I still love the people. I love the pastor, but I was in that church and I said, I want to get ordained. What, what do I do? He says, well, I want you to get a Bible degree out of the way. Okay, I said, okay. So I got the Bible degree out of the way. And I mean, the day, the, that week, I got it on Thursday or Friday, that Sunday, I walked in and I gave it to him and I said, I want to be ordained. And you said that was it. He said, okay, we've got some uh, deacons coming down from Tampa. They'll be here this week or this next week. And when they do, we'll have them evaluate you. Okay. And I'm sitting there the next week and I always wear a nice coat and a tie. It looked good. And uh, I always wore, when I wear socks, if anybody knows, if I wear shoes, I have socks on. Does anybody know what's different about them? Different. One is always green and one is always red because port and starboard, I can't find my way otherwise. So I have one green and one red. So uh, I had that and I had a beard and they came something in. Something new every day. It, something new every day. Yeah. If you see me wearing shoes, I'm always wearing a green and a red shot, shot, socks. Anyway, you, uh, socks, you won't see it very often. I can guarantee you that. But uh, anyway, so I'm sitting there and... The deacons never came up and talked to me. And the next week, the pastor called me to his house and he said, we want to have dinner. And I came over and he said, well, the deacons don't think you're ready to be ordained. I said, well, how would they know? They didn't talk to me. And they said, well, you have a beard. And they didn't like that you wore two different colored socks. And I said, where in the Bible does it say that I need to have a beard or not have a beard? And I said, I would argue that the Bible would show that I should have a beard, but that's being a little legalistic. But if you're going to go by the Bible, you know, everybody in scripture, everybody, and everybody up until about the 1800s had a beard. Look at the great, great theologians. John Knox, man, his was like this long, right? John Calvin and uh, what's his name? Um, uh, the the great preacher over in England. Spurgeon. Um, Spurgeon. Oh, they all had beards, okay? This is a modern thing. Anyway. Jesus himself had a beard. Oh, there's no doubt he had a beard. There's no doubt. All of them did. All the apostles, every one of them. But he said that. He said, well, we want you to shave. And he said, I said, I'm not going to do it. I said, that's legalism. I'm not going to do it. And he says, well, you want to please God rather than men. I said, then I'm not going to shave because that would be pleasing men rather than God. And so what I did is I went to another church without any bitterness towards them. And I still go to their functions sometimes, which not Sunday functions, but I love them. And I, I, I still fellowship with them, but I, I could not be a part of that. I'm sorry. It's adding a tradition. It's adding something which is extra biblical. Find that in scripture, show it to me, and then we'll talk about it. Other than that, I don't want to hear it. There you go. Um, like the book of David. 
Yeah, it's in the Book of David. Maybe it's in Hezekiah, I think. I, it's one of the two. Anyway. Um, socks were a big issue back in the day. Socks were a big issue. I got to tell you, if you didn't have the right colored socks, you were out of Israel. Yeah, okay, a little bit of yeast. Our, uh, I'm going to read our life application. I think I might have read it, but I'm going to read it again if I did. Our doctrine is to be based on the Word of God. Anything which is practiced in a church which doesn't adhere to the Word of God is to be rejected. Paul's words... Paul's warning to the Corinthians is a principle which must be held to even now. Okay, we got time for one more verse. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. There it is. I said it was coming in Corinthians. I wasn't thinking. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Feast fulfilled, folks. You don't have to observe the Passover. I've actually had people quote that to me and say, see, you have to observe the Passover. Completely missing that Christ fulfilled it. They're saying, see, Christ is our Passover. We have to observe the Passover as if it's mandatory. People need to think things through very clearly. They don't. Contained within the New Testament are extraordinary hints of the fulfillment of Old Testament shadows and pictures of Christ. This verse contains two of them, which could be overlooked so easily, and yet they are immensely deep in their theological significance. In chapter 23 of Leviticus, there is a list of feasts of the Lord. In order, they are Sabbath, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, which is known as Bikarim, weeks, which is known as Shavuot or Pentecost, trumps, which is Yom Teruah, the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur, and Tabernacles, which is known as Sukkot. Those are your eight feasts of the Lord. One is a weekly feast. The other are annual feasts of the Lord. Paul notes in two Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that these find their fulfillment where? In Christ. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. That's the dietary laws of Israel. Or regarding a festival. That's the feasts of the Lord. Or a new moon. That is a feast which is on the first day of every month in the Old Testament. Or Sabbaths. That's speaking of the weekly Sabbaths. Because there's 52 of them. It's in the plural. Which are a shadow. A shadow of the things to come. But the substance is of Christ. They're done. They're done. It's a shadow. If you take Christ, guess what? You get the shadow. If you take the shadow and Christ walks away, you got nothing. You're holding nothing. Okay. As a validation of this, each and every one of these feasts, I had somebody email me this week and said, you know, one of the other teachers that I listened to says the fall feasts aren't fulfilled. I'll school him on that if I ever talk to him personally. I sent back, I sent to the guy and I said, they're fulfilled. I said, if they're not fulfilled, then the law of Moses is still in effect. It's not fulfilled. Christ is not the Messiah. And we're not in a new covenant. It's that simple. And he said, that makes sense. And I said, now I want you to watch these sermons. And I sent him the links and the written copy of all of them. So they understands that that is a, it begins with an H and it ends with heresy. Okay. It is a heresy to say that Christ did not fulfill the law. Okay. Validation of these, they've all been fulfilled in his work during his first advent, not his second, in his first. Today's verse from 1 Corinthians gives us verification that two of them are fulfilled, Passover and unleavened bread. A detailed study of the other six feasts will demonstrate their fulfillment as well. Christ is the focus of all of scripture, all of it. And all of scripture testifies to his work 
understanding this, we can now look at Paul's words in how they pertain to this context of his surrounding thoughts. He begins by saying, therefore, it is a term which asks us to contemplate what has been thus far said. In the previous verse, he said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In order to ensure that the church is not tainted with bad doctrine or sinful practice, he now builds on that by saying, purge out the old leaven. This is exactly what the Israelites were told to do at the Passover each year. That's recorded in Exodus 12, verses 19 and 20. I'm not going to read them because we're running out of time. The Old Testament body was given as a physical example, which presents spiritual truths. Leaven, picturing sin, is to be removed. This was to be practiced for the entire week of, what is it? Unleavened bread. Thank you. The entire week of unleavened bread. The picture is thus fulfilled in Christ, who was sinless. And now we who are in him are to purge out the leaven of sin in our lives. So Paul says that you may be a new lump. And he then explains why by saying, since you truly are unleavened. What he's saying is that we really are without sin in Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't have sin on us. We just talked about that. But God is not counting sins against us. 2 Corinthians 5.19. So we truly are unleavened. In God's eyes, he does not see the things we do. He sees Christ who has covered us with his blood. That is what he sees. We are truly unleavened in Christ. That's why only judgment falls for rewards and losses. And it's Christ's judgment. Okay? We'll go on. In Christ, we are deemed as sinless. We are declared not guilty, despite the reality of our fallen state. Paul explains this. I'm going to read them because I've cited them at least 10 times today. I'm going to read them really quickly. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. Now all things are of God who has, past tense, reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In Christ, you are not being imputed sin. Though we are still fallen and sin, those sins are not imputed because of Christ. But Paul would go further and ask us to live in the manner which is reflected by our status. We are to purge out the old leaven and to be a new lump. All along with the unleavened bread, the symbolism from the Passover also finds its true fulfillment in Christ Jesus. This is noted as Paul continues by saying, For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. The celebration of these two feasts, Passover and unleavened bread, were mere shadows of the greater work of Christ. In him we find the fulfillment of all types and pictures from the Old Testament, including the fulfillment of all not just the spring, but all of the feasts of the Lord. Life application. Jesus claimed that all scripture testifies to him. By studying our Bible, we find that this is true. He is the entire focus of the word of God. Be sure to read the Bible through the lens of Christ. When you do, it all makes sense. Yes. Our bodies are not redeemed yet. Romans That's true. He says we're waiting for, for the redemption. redemption of the body. That's right. That's why there's sin in the body. That's right. There is sin in the body, but it is not being imputed against us. Yeah. But our bodies are corrupt, and that's why we suffer with these things. That's why we struggle with these things. If somebody is here tonight or somebody's listening online and they think, I just can't meet the demands of the law, guess what? Nobody can. Yeah. Nobody can do it. We're all fallen, and we all have 
crazy things going on in our lives. And if you say you don't, you're deluding yourself and you're you're definitely trying to impress us, which you're not going to do. We're all falling. Okay. So I know that you struggle with it. The thing you do is just keep thinking about Jesus. That's why I love Hebrews 12 too, is because I've come out of a life where pick one of the big 10 and I've done it. Okay. I, I assure you that the best thing to do when you are living this life of sin is to fix your eyes on Jesus. Mm -hmm. Hebrews 12 too. It's the one thing that will keep you from doing all of the other things that you used to do. I don't care what law you find in the law of Moses. I have probably broken that law, okay? But let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that will get us to the finish race, not us, okay? Look to Jesus. Heavenly Father, we certainly want to look to you. We want to look to you in all ways and at all times because you are so great and you are so glorious. Everything that you do is perfect and everything that we do is just tainted with the life that we live. So help us to rise above that and to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to live for you as best we can. But thank you that you're not imputing those sins against us any longer because of Christ. He's taken the penalty. Thank God for Jesus who gave his life for our sins. And Lord, we just, we love you. We love you so much. We desperately love you because of what you've done for us. Help us to live that life that you, you want us to live. Help us to do it. And we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Okay, I don't have to back this up, I don't think, because I screwed it up at the beginning, but I'm going to try anyway. Let's see, is it going to go back? No. I'm going to push this and I'm going to push it.